Yeah. And that term is, I, I heard that term debated. It's like, well, beta heroes doesn't really make sense. Why don't we have gamma heroes? You know, like all sorts of sort of puns. Um, I, so I say, um, I say uh, beta in the streets, alpha in the sheets. Like that's who I write. Welcome to Steam Scenes, the podcast about... Wait, hold on. Sure, sex is, well, sexy, but it's also sassy, and it's silly, and it's fun. Hi, I'm El Greco, and I write steamy romance. On my podcast, Steam Scenes, I'm joined by my fellow romance authors for some explosive, <laughs> see what I did there, conversations on writing all the naughty bits. Sit back, relax, and join us for some scintillating conversation on Steam Scenes. Today's guest is Kilby Blades. Kilby is a USA Today bestselling author of romance and women's fiction. Her debut novel, Snapdragon, was a Holt Medallion finalist and a Publishers Weekly Book Life Prize semifinalist. Her recent novel, The Secret Ingredient, is a finalist in the RWA Vivian Contest. Critics praise her for easing feminism and equality into her novels. Um, that quote is from Indie Reader. And quote, writing characters who complement each other like a fine wine does a good meal. Oof, Publishers Weekly. Kilby is a feminist, an enophile, a cinephile, a social justice fighter, and above all else, a glutton for a good story. Welcome, Kilby, to Steam Scenes. Hello. Thank Hello. you for having me. Oh, my God. Your bio is awesome. And at first I was like, oh, no, enophile, enophile. And I kept practicing it. And then I was like, watch, I'm going to say she's a gluten for a good story. <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> I, am an, I am an enophile. I had to look that word up because, I, you know, for me in my head, I was just like, I like wine. But there is a name for people who like wine. So it turns out I am an enophile. I looked that up, too, because I thought it meant music lover. I have no idea why. Yeah, there are all sorts of files and, you know, like all sorts of like weird words. You know, it, it turns out that stamp collecting, like the love of stamp collecting is called philately, which I think is just the funniest word ever invented. So. Because it, um, it's like phlebotomist, but it's not. Right. Yes. <laughs> it has nothing to do with blood. No. <laughs> so weird this English language of ours it is so weird so that like this is kind of cool because like the enophile can lead us into actually one of my questions for you we're totally jumping um over a whole bunch but you're a sommelier I am did I say that right I'm a sommelier 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 whoo that's a process it is a process, but, uh, you know, when you're studying for the sommelier exam, you can also expense wine. So that's tax deductible. Well, that's a good, that's a fun thing. So what made you decide to do that? I decided that I wanted to be a food, wine, and travel writer at a moment when I had been, I and everybody else had been laid off from my job. Okay. So I was working, um, I was working as a VP for a Fortune 500 company. I had just left the company that I worked for um, in like September of 2008. And then by December of 2008, the entire economy had collapsed right. and, um, you know, Lehman Brothers had gone under and I had just, you know, the company that I went to um, went bankrupt. 
So I had this moment. And so this is around December of 2008. I was laid off permanently along with everybody else at my company on my 30th birthday (laughs) while I was on a business trip to a place in the middle of nowhere that wasn't that cool of a place to be on a business trip. Wait, wait, wait. They laid you off while you were on a business trip? How did that conversation even go? Well, because I worked, so I live in San Francisco. So I worked in the San Francisco office, but actually headquarters were on the East Coast. Okay. So I was at headquarters. Oh, okay. It was a business trip. Okay. It's not like you were in like Duluth. At like like meeting a client like meeting one of their clients and being and then being like oh by the way <laughs> by the way no so I ended up in a dive bar with myself and my other counterparts who all got laid off on my thirtieth birthday drinking cheap liquor oh. three thousand miles away from home oh my God. so and this is this is like a much longer answer than you asked for but um. So this is December 2008, and I was scheduled to go on. So my husband and I have this baby bucket list, like all these things we wanted to do before we had a baby. So we had this trip to Tanzania planned, and we were going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro and hang out in Tanzania for a month. So I was in this weird position where I couldn't go out and look for a job because I couldn't start a job because I was about to go to Tanzania for a month. And then, so I was just in this weird situation where I realized I probably wasn't that employable because everybody was out of a job and looking for a job. So I said, all right, this is the year I'm going to become a writer. And my, my first pursuit was, you know, I had just moved to California a few years earlier, not being from California. And I really like the culinary world. So I decided I was going to become a food, wine and travel writer. And it was going to give me an excuse to see everything in California and cover wine country. And that's exactly what I did. Wow. Okay. So see, this is, this is actually great. Um, so, so is this when you, so this is when you realized you wanted to be a writer before this, you weren't sort of like, you know, tucking away romance novels on the side or anything like that. Oh, I totally was. Okay. So I started writing. So I'm, I'm one of those people who's always written and I come from a family where we all write. So my sister's always written and my dad has always written I started writing stories about my friend group and boys I liked when I was a tween. Oh, I love it. I wrote these stories. One of the only places I was allowed to go as a tween was the roller skating rink. I remember those. (laughs) Right, exactly. They like kind of don't exist anymore. Yeah. My best friend Robin and I would write these stories starring us, of course, and the cute skater boys who we really liked. And there were these sort of fantasy stories like oh what if we had to go to California to a skating competition with our crew and you know what would happen if we were like all staying in a house on the beach and we like hooked up with the boys that we like that sort of thing this is awesome yeah I wish I I mean and this is like you're so this is like I'm writing these stories in my bedroom with her sitting next to me and us giggling together on my apple 2c and like printing them out on my dot matrix printer like this is like (laughs) some real old school stuff so <laughs> do you I, have them still? I, I, you know, I'm one of those people who saves everything. So I would hazard a guess that they really are somewhere, but okay. I haven't seen them in 30 years. Okay. All right. This is great though. I love it. I absolutely yes. love it. <laughs> That's where I got my start. And then I, I wrote a fair bit of fan fiction once I figured out what that was. Okay. Um, Cause I've always had opinions, you know, I'm, I'm a big TV and movie person. I've always had opinions about who the pairing is and sometimes they get it wrong. <laughs> So that's where my fan fiction career came from. And I wrote fan fiction for a long time and never entertained the idea of write, like publishing original fiction. 
but I was writing in a really big fandom and then people who were writing at the same time as I was, who I would run into at Comic-Con because we were all there, you know, being fans of our shows. Right. I would, you know, then I, they all started self-publishing and becoming huge, huge authors. And then I, I was like, why are they doing that? And I'm not doing that. So then that's how I ended up doing this. Got it. So were you, so prior to 2008, did you start writing your original work or did that happen after 2008? No. So I had, I mean, I had so much fan fiction in the bank. Actually, the early novels that I published under Kilby Blades were rewrites of fan fiction that I had already published. Oh, what was that process like? Well, you know, there, fan fiction is not fan fiction is not fan fiction. So in the fan fiction world, some things are canon. And that's fiction that really takes place in the world that the author has built. Right. A lot of fan fiction is what's called alternate universe. Correct. And alternate universe doesn't really... Alternate universe a lot of times is just a way to get people to read your work because they feel like they're reading characters that they already know and like. But a lot of times it really doesn't have a lot to do with the original world. Mm -hmm. And I was already writing a lot of alternate universe fan fiction. So it didn't really take a lot for me to take it out of the world that I originally wrote it for. Okay. Okay. Um, so I, I sort of just take a step back. What It sounds like you were always writing some sort of romance starting in your bedroom with your best friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what drew you to, to romance? Do you, do you have any idea? I, so I've always been a reader in addition to a writer. I think my reading pattern when I was younger was to read things that I didn't that were hidden worlds to me. So I remember being in elementary school and reading the Sweet Valley Twins because I wanted to know what middle school was going to be like. And I remember being in middle school and reading Sweet Valley High because I wanted to know what high school was going to be like. And I remember um, the first year before I went to summer camp, I wanted to know what summer camp was going to be like. So I read books about summer camp. Um, I think that romance was the same for me, that I started reading romance because there were things that I didn't really understand about dating and boys and how that whole thing was supposed to work. Mm. And to that extent, I think that I really treated reading like research almost and like previewing whatever my next stage was going to be so that I could kind of try and figure it out before I experienced it. That's really fascinating. So what did you walk away with doing sort of like romance, uh, romance reading as research? Did, was it accurate or was it sadly spectacularly inaccurate well some more accurate than others so okay. interestingly I you know like I said I just admitted a few minutes ago I keep a lot of stuff and I recently helped my mom sell her house and therefore found a lot of my belongings and I found a copy of forever by Judy Bloom, mm. which was absolutely every teenager at the time's manual for what is sex going to be like Right. Because that was the first sort of really mainstream book that had a sex scene. And interestingly, I found this copy and it is absolutely a copy that I borrowed from the library and never gave back <laughs> because it still has the little library card and the little sticker that says YA on the spine. So I probably owe my local library that a million dollars by now. But I also found V.C. Andrews books, which I was also reading. <laughs> 
<laughs> which had these really problematic romantic relationships in them. Yeah. Uh, which I, which turned out not to resonate with my actual life, but I, I do think that at the time that I was reading them, they were an exploration of like, how does adulthood work? And like, what's a good relationship and what's a bad relationship and right. all of those sorts of things factored in. Right. Right. Um, so when you actually sat down, okay, so wait, back up for a second again. When you were writing the fandom, did you get graphic with your sex scenes within the fandom or did you sort of hold back on those? I did get graphic in cases. I think okay. in some cases, it depends on why I was writing the fan fiction. So for example, um, I wrote West Wing fan fiction at one point. I had no idea that that was a thing. Oh, it's a thing. I had no idea. It was actually West Wing fan fiction was really good because West Wing fans tended to be a little bit older and yep. tended to be really smart. So it was pretty well written fan fiction. I had no like, idea. Yeah, some fandoms, some fandoms like the age range skews a little younger and the sort of demographic is a little bit less sophisticated, but that wasn't the case with the West Wing. So that was a show where I felt that Sam and Josh were the couple. But it was a network television show in the late 90s and they were never going to have a gay couple as the lead. So sort of my imagination where that went was I see that pairing and I want to write that pairing because I see the chemistry between the characters. Right. Um, in other cases, you would watch a show and it would be, you know, there's clearly a lot of sexual chemistry but because it's network television, they're not going to put it on screen. Right. So you would see, not just for me, you would see a lot of people sort of like, oh, it's on screen, but it's not on screen. Okay. And you see a lot of people kind of like answer that by being like, okay, we're going to put it on the page since they're not going to put it on the screen. Right. Okay, cool. So with, with fan fiction, I felt like I sort of, how sexy the, the fic was really was related more to how much tension there was between the characters as they were written by the original creator okay got it so then what, what so what was your first scene okay so what was the first sex scene you wrote was it within the um west wing fanfic world no ac actually wow this is this is gonna take you even farther back but the okay. first fandom that i wrote in was dawson's creek wow <laughs> <laughs> and that was your and that was your first and that was your first steamy scene like your actual foray into steamy writing I think wow so. what I think was so. it, do you remember what it was like to write your first one i don't but i've read <laughs> i've read my i've gone back and read some of that and it, as I reread it, it's so clearly reflective of my understanding of sex at that, at the age that I was at that time. Okay. Which was about, I was about 19 when right. I was writing that and I was still forming my own sexual identity at that point. Right. And it's interesting because the sex that I write now is just so different because my understanding of sex is different. Can you sort of like give me an example of of what what was like what you were writing then versus what how you would write it now it's okay you know, if you can i'm putting i'm totally putting her on the spot so <laughs> i think that at that time the way that sex and sexuality had been presented to me was 
And based on my experience that I had had in relationships at that time, my sex was a fairly sort of goal oriented thing where, Oh, okay. You know, it's like, there was kind of like, you know, first base, second base, third, you know, it's like, right. it's like you know, and then someone's going to hit a home run. Right. So, and I think that my, my vision, my view of, of sex has, has evolved, right. Like does sex always equal penetration is it not over until there's penetration like you know right just these sort of like views about sex whereas I think the older I got my views of what sex could be and what it means to have sex and you know even have a climax and when is sex over like all of those things have expanded for me okay okay cool so do you have a do you have any sort of like process for writing a scene or is it just it's just like a normal whatever you sit down to write and it could be you know making dinner it could be having sex No, I have to be inspired to write sex scenes and if I'm having trouble writing sex scenes so I'll back up. I always okay. write the scenes that I'm motivated to write in the order that I'm motivated to write them. So I might start a book the first words that I write of a book might be chapter 19. If I see chapter 19 really clearly. Ooh, this is so, unusual. Yeah, that is unusual. I realized that about myself. This and actually unusual. it's hard for me to, it's when, now that I do more traditional publishing, it, like it's interesting to work with editors. I'm working on a book right now where it's like, okay, let's talk at, let's write the first half of the book and let's talk and then write the second half of the book. And I had to have a conversation. It was like, ah, that's not necessarily how I write. <laughs> and were they okay with that? Or did you have to shift your, the way that you write? No, they're okay with that. Okay. But there, there are moments I actually owe the first half of the book uh, in about a week. But I have written scenes already in the second half of the book because I was in the flow and I was inspired to write scenes that, I, that are not due yet. Right. So do you outline or are you a pantser? I do both. I okay. usually pants and then I reach a point where it needs structure. Gotcha. And I, then I start giving it more structure, but I'm somebody like, I really see the whole story in my mind. I can okay. see an entire book in my mind before I, before I sit down to write it. That's really cool. I wish I could do that. <laughs> Would make my life a lot easier. <laughs> So what, so in terms of writing, um, these steamy scenes and so, so let's say you start and you're like chapter nine and here's, here, is there anything particularly that sort of like inspires you that you're like, okay, I know the scene that I'm going to write in terms of the steam. Is there anything that grabs you or catches you or makes you go, oh, that, that's it. Yes. There is. And I don't know, I don't know what it is exactly. It's more, and maybe this goes back to me being a visual thinker. Like I can Mm -hmm. see it. I can't explain why I can see it, but I can see it. Okay. In my mind's eye. Right. Um, but I'm also sort of curious about, you know, piecing it back together, you know, because I know so many writers, you know, have said to me, no, I need to write linear, 
linearly and they don't even do that if they're struggling to write the intimate scenes they don't even do that insert sex scene here they will sit there and just sort of fight their way through it no matter how long it takes before they're able to move on so in terms of like sort of writing the way that you're writing um, um i can see like actually a lot of prose in terms of you don't have to go back and rewrite if you've made changes into like, you know, chapter 19, for example, because um, you you kind of haven't written the beginning of the story yet. So you can actually, ha- you actually are able to write that in. Yeah, that's true. Um, th- there are pros and cons to it because sometimes if I think of a better idea though, sometimes I think of, uh, sometimes I've, I'm writing and I think of something that's better than an original premise that I wrote and then I have to, go back and change it for continuity right right i mean i don't know do we all do that no matter how we write whether it's linear or not (laughs) i think so right i mean (laughs) i mean where you get to that point you're like oh no crap i like this better and now let me go back and fix every single thing that you know every chapter i have to go back and look at every chapter and fix it um so you've written women's fiction romance and erotic romance correct like all three categories yes and is there one that you prefer to me the romance and the women's fiction bleed into each other so i've never written a romance that didn't have that didn't feel women's fiction ish and i've never written a women's fiction that didn't have a romance okay I think I mainly send that signal that I'm a women's fiction writer because there are things that people won't find in my romance novels. Like I'm not an insta love person. Okay. And therefore it always feels a little slower and it always feels a little bit more character driven. Mm-hmm. And I also have, I also have heroines that have their own stories that I really go into so it, talking about the fact that I write women's fiction is really more about signaling to readers that it's going to feel women's fiction-ish. Okay. Can we break that down a little bit more? Because I'm mm-hmm. super fascinated by this in terms of, um, you know, so, sort of diving a little bit deeper into a woman's story, because I think this is my struggle with romance is when I read a lot of romance, like some do dig in a little bit more and some don't. And I prefer the ones that do. And so I'm super like fascinated by those. Yeah. Um, I want it. So I have trouble writing women who are not me. <laughs> so okay. all of my stuff is autobiographical. Is it? No, is it really? It really is. Oh, wow. Okay, keep going. Okay. There's nothing, there's nothing that's happened to characters in my books that hasn't happened to me on some level. Oh, wow. So when I, like my first book, uh, my debut novel called Snapdragon is an erotic romance. And, you know, if you just call something an erotic romance, a lot of people are expecting an alpha hero and insta yep. love and all of those sorts of things. But yeah. it's all from her point of view. She is a billionaire. Mm-hmm. She is the daughter of a very crooked senator and she's dealing with living in her father's shadow who she did, who she really doesn't want to be associated with, but who she can't not be associated with because she's always in the public eye. Right. She is elite educated and very good at what she does, but she, and she's a psychopharmacologist who works at a hospital, but she has a misogynist boss 
who thinks that she has a whole lot of unearned privilege and she does have privilege, mm. but she also is very good at what she does. Right. And she really can't like casually date because she's a quasi public figure. So if she decides she wants to see somebody, it becomes complicated because then there are tabloids and other things. And it's also complicated because she's ambitious and a lot of men say that they want a smart woman, but a lot of men really don't want to deal with a woman having her own career priorities. Very so true. the book really is about how there this character who, you know, wants to have a sex life and who wants to have love, even though she doesn't believe that she can have love given her life. It's really about how does, how does a woman who is ambitious and her career star is rising, how does she manage her life and how does she have a sex life? Like the book's about her. Right. So that's that's kind of where I do my signaling because I don't want people to think that they're they're going to get a book that isn't really talking about my heroine and her life. Gotcha. So how okay? So how 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 do readers sort of react to that? Because you are giving them, I guess, a little bit more. It feels I I don't know. I feel like it's like you're giving them more, um, but maybe they're they get impatient with that. I don't know. They do. And it, it, it's all about signaling. So right. I put the word feminist right in my profile because people who like that word are going to be like, yes, I want to read this book. And people who don't like that word are going to be like, bye, which is what I want. Right. Right. Um, and I try to put other things in my description to let people know that to some people it's going to feel like a slow burn. So usually my bad reviews are, it was too slow. But my good reviews are like, I really loved the characters. I really loved how realistic it was. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's not insta-love. And, it, you know, insta-love is definitely a thing, especially in erotic romance. So the best right. I can do is just, like, try to let people know. Right. I mean, you've written, um, you wrote a piece for Heroes and Heartbreakers um, about rewriting the contemporary hero, uh, contemporary heroine in romance. And I thought that there were some such valid points in what you were writing um, that we can do better in terms of equity and in terms of balance between the hero and the heroine in our books. Um, do you do you write alpha males at all or are you just like, nope, not not going there? I think I have heroes with, I think my heroes have sort of like an alpha dog that can come out when they need to. Mm -hmm. Okay. But overall, my heroes are sort of woke to the fact that my heroines have their own problems and that they don't need to sort of make choices for them. Yeah. Yeah, I think. And yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I think that's where the alphaness comes in. Like the alphas are in charge and it's like, but like women need to be in charge of their own lives and women who are in charge of their own lives need to be with men who make them more in charge of their own lives, not less in charge of their own lives. Yes, I would completely agree with that. I don't know why you know, I, I don't know. I don't really understand because blah, let me try this again. Um, I guess, I guess they're called beta heroes. Um, and I don't know. I think that they're super sexy and I would love to read more of them. 
Yeah. And that term is, I, I heard that term debated. It's like, well, beta heroes doesn't really make sense. Why don't we have gamma heroes? You know, like all sorts of sort of puns. Um, I, so I say, um, I say uh, beta in the streets, alpha in the sheets. Like that's who I write. Oh, and I like that. that. <laughs> I, I, think, like that. I think that's really the fantasy. I think the fantasy is to, you know, have somebody who will be sort of, who will take over when you want them to. Right. And who will step back. Right. And let you do you. Right. When you don't want or need them to take over. Right. Um, and I do think this sort of conversation about fantasy is a very important one, um, you know, in particular around romance, I, you know, because I've, I've sort of found, you know, I, I've found people can be really dismissive of the genre because there is an assumption that uh, there is like that the books have not progressed beyond V.C. Andrews. Right. Right. And the sort of like the problematic romance from, I guess, the 70s and 80s. But let's face it, like TV was problematic in the 70s and 80s. Movies were problematic. You know, <laughs> you know, it's we so can, true. you know, it's sort of the evolution of, of our culture and um, and our politics and our and our social contract and all of that um, needed to evolve so that we can change. And I think that there is a lot of people that still look at romance that way. Um, and, you know, but at the same, it, it, and it, and it has completely turned the tide. There are so many writers out there that are, are writing strong, uh, you know, strong female protagonists and writing women who are completely in charge, um, and comfortable with sex and their sexuality. And they're not sort of like learning from the hero. Yeah. And I think there are authors who, have distanced themselves from romance because of that stigma. Right. So for many reasons, there is a movement to women's fiction. There are so many romance authors right now who are writing romances that they are categorizing as women's fiction. There are other reasons why people have left romance. I mean, RWA debacle and mass yeah. exodus to WFWA, which is for so romance writers of America, you have a lot of authors who left romance writers of America and women's fiction writers of America said that they got like 300 new members <laughs> in like a very short period of time at what there was a moment last year where they were like, yeah, we got 300 new members this month. Um, so for various reasons, romance authors are more comfortable, if not overtly motivated to associate their work with women's fiction, if they feel that it has that, more of the component that we're talking about. Right, right. Um, so when you're writing women's fiction, do you do you tend to close the door on your on your on the steamier things or, or or do you just move forward like a regular like you would with romance? I tend not to close the door, but that's not necessarily a great decision if I want to sell manuscripts to be honest with you. Really? Because, yeah, because a lot of times if the genre seems muddy then publishers get nervous that it's not going to meet genre expectations and so, so women's I, fiction has no sex in it is that or it's very close the door um not necessarily it, it okay. can have sex it, it doesn't necessarily rise to the level of being feeling as erotic like it has sex that can be a little bit more tame 
okay. what I would call erotic romance. But there are other rules. Like usually women's fiction is going to be from the woman's point of view. Right. Um, even if the story really is about her. Like I wrote a story about a family feud where you really need both points of view, but it is actually her story. And it's about the story of her, her sort of processing her family's position in the family feud. And, but she has to play off of him. So it's just, there are more rules. In okay. Okay. I mean, I hate to, it's kind of, I'm sure it's kind of like picking your favorite child, but do you have a preference? I don't know that I have a preference. I, I write stories that I write stories the way I think they need to be written. And as a result of doing that and not necessarily writing to market, then I sometimes have stories that I have a hard time selling because the publisher is like, I really like this story and I don't know where to put it. Uh, I think that's changing. I think now, especially, I think a lot more publishers are really publishers themselves are getting more on board with women's fiction and are getting more on board with working with romance authors as women's fiction authors. So I actually think that this year is going to be this year and next year are going to be good years for me in terms of, um, publishers wanting to buy my stories. I feel like I was a couple of years ahead of the market. Um, whereas some of the stories that I wrote, maybe publishers would have preferred that they were a little bit more insta love. Right. Now, now they're like, Oh, okay, well, yeah, we need it. We want it to be a little bit more. We want it to be less that more what you naturally write. Right. And then, the, and, and that allows for really the growth of the characters and the, you know, insta love is tricky and, you know, I can, I'm, I'm a fan of it. I don't ha I don't, or I should say, I don't have a problem with it, but there is something to be said for watching the evolution of the romance sort of spark. Yeah. And you know, I don't know why I don't get insta love because I totally fell in insta love with my husband. <laughs> Oh my god, me too. <laughs> it's like the one thing I can't write. And that's so funny. Right, but my own love story was like we like met each other and it was like, okay, we're just gonna do everything together now. Oh my god. Now how long was it between like the meeting and the getting married part? A few years. Uh I met we met in school. So there were these moments we met when we were in grad school and okay. we were in grad school in a city that neither of us was gonna live in. Okay. So we were in this weird position where we had just met and we, uh, we had just met and we had to almost immediately decide, are we going to look for jobs in the same city? It was early in our relationship that we had to kind of decide whether we were going to commit to like going to the same place and living together. Wow. And I'm guessing that you did, or did you try and do like a long distance thing? Oh my God, I'm totally being nosy. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, we did. But I mean, business school goes very fast. So business school is a two-year program right. and you're inter, like, as soon as you get to business school, like in the fall, you're already interviewing in the winter for internships. And the goal is to get an internship that's going to yield a job offer. So all of like, you need to know immediately when you go into business school, almost immediately, you need to know what career track you're on and where you're open to moving because you're interviewing with those companies. Oh my God, that happened two or so three fast. Months. Yeah, wow, that's so fast. I didn't realize that it happened that fast. Yeah. That's kind of crazy. And so you guys just decided that this was it, like you were going to, you're going to do it together. Yeah. So we, we interviewed for jobs and similar, we basically said West coast cause I went to business school in the Midwest. We basically said, okay, let's both look for jobs on the West coast. Okay. And then we ended up moving to San Francisco, which is the place where both of us got offers that we were happy with. 
Wow. That's yeah, like he got of... an offer in, like we were looking at Seattle too, and like he got an offer in Seattle and I did not get an offer in Seattle. So that was like, that helped make our decision. So Seattle was sort of like off the table. You know, it's sort of fascinating because you, as you had said, like you write stories that sort of, you know, can mirror your life um, and true, you know, stories that were true to you. And I think that you're kind of like living proof too of having two very high powered careers and making that work romantically. Right, exactly. Like both of us are, both of us have high powered careers. Like we went to a really fancy school and got, have really fancy jobs. And, you know, like I was a C level marketing executive <laughs> um, before I started authoring. So this, like it absolutely, the books that I write absolutely reflect the lives of my characters. I mean, I remember being on airplanes writing scenes about my characters being on airplanes Wow! because I was on an airplane all the time. Now, are you, have you stepped away from corporate and you are full-time writing at this point? I stepped away from corporate and I took a much, much easier day job. So I still have a day job, but I, I took a day job that I'm like grossly, grossly overqualified for. Okay. That's five minutes away from my house that does not require me to travel any place so that I have time to write because okay. where, where I was two years ago was like 70 hour weeks flying across the country on red eyes usually. Yeah. Um, Cause I have little kids and I would fly, I would take the red eye because I didn't want to like lose an extra day with them. Yep. And, you know, in some cases like driving into the, I live in the Bay area. So like driving across the Bay to get to the office and all of those sorts of things. So I just had a moment where I was like, I, I don't not want to have a career. I want to write because I did have years where I was home writing and I was so I was bored. Like I, I needed social interaction. So I, I picked a job that's an easy job for me where I get to go hang out with my office mates and like go have lunch with them every day and like talk <laughs> at the water cooler and like have fun doing my little job. But I also have way more time to write than I did when I was commuting and traveling etc okay yeah I was gonna say with your schedule as like you know sort of fortune 500 you know VP like juggling that with a writing career with the kids with the family with the husband with, like that's a lot yes it's <laughs> a lot that's a lot of pressure that's a lot of time that's a lot of not a lot of sleep <laughs> no it's not a lot of sleep and you know what I I reached a point in my career where I didn't need I had already gone as high as I was going to go I didn't need to go higher right um I had had the experience like where else am I going to go do I want to be a C CEO no I, I was already a CMO I'm not gonna I don't need to be a CEO I don't want to be a CEO and I um you know worked for some companies that you know I, li I, I live in the Bay Area and I work in Silicon Valley I worked for some companies and had some stock options and like those worked out so <laughs> <laughs> know like it's all good <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> so before we jump into your steamy scene I do want to talk about food and sensuality um because I you wrote a book the secret ingredient which is um about food uh now I don't remember exactly what it is but I have a note here um and the fact that you uh, ha are certified some sommelier so i can't say it now could you say it again <laughs> it's sommelier sommelier like oh sommelier um, yes, yes absolutely <laughs> wine yay, yay. yay. <laughs> yes sommelier um you know so 
how do you, like, how has that helped you with your steam writing? If it has at all, I'm assuming it has. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I think that since, excuse me, that sensuality is needed in order to write good sex. And I think for me, there's a sort of, I, I think good sex has to involve five senses. And I also think that, um, characters who are highly attuned to one sense can often just be more sensual people. Like if you're somebody who enjoys wine, you're, you're attuned to smell and you're attuned to taste. And, you know, I mean, people think that wine is very snooty, but like there's something called mouthfeel, right? Right. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, even like people who really love music, I think that being tuned into the sense of that experience just taps into for what a lot of people may be like a sort of core sensuality. And I play core sensuality up in all of my books. I'm kind of curious after you got certified and you had this sort of like this, this knowledge that is a very sensual, very physical knowledge um, or taps into very physical sensations. Um, did it change your writing at all? You know, I think it made me more creative in my descriptions. People make fun of wine reviewing <laughs> because you'll get, you know, you'll get a wine writer who tastes something and they'll be like, well, I got hints of tobacco and shoe leather with, you know, red current overtones. I mean, the, the, language that's used to sort of differentiate wine is can be tremendously ridiculous um but i do think that i learned a vocabulary and i learned um a level of describing something in detail and being able to be spontaneous about being able to be i guess open to how something tastes or feels or what it evokes I think mm -hmm. becoming a sommelier made me more sensitive to that okay that's really cool I, it's something that I would really love to do but I find the whole thing so intimidating I don't know why like it's just wine wine is intimidating <laughs> well you gotta you gotta look at it as an author as that experience it's a, right. it's a unique opportunity to be exposed to quirky personalities that you can <laughs> absolutely put in your books I always say I love that authors are lying when they say that they're that the characters are fake. The characters are never fake. The characters are always real people who we have come across. Yeah, it's rooted in somebody that we know or have experienced or have interact with. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's so funny because I actually took a, um, a just finished a, a course in um, intimacy coaching and relationship mm. coaching to try and sort of, um, you know, help my writing, which I'm still trying to figure out exactly how to, you know, incorporate what I've learned, but it was really fascinating. Um, it was just a very fascinating experience to go through because I've never been through anything like that before. So it, it takes, I feel that it does take, you know, if not necessarily training, just giving yourself space to, think about it you know what I mean yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. But it's so expansive. Like yeah. taking that space to think about it is expansive. Yeah. And I think, you know, getting a vocabulary or at the very least being able to sort of like hone in on, oh, well, this is, you know, this this whole idea of like, when they talk about this is something that's been on my mind actually today as I'm kind of like going through some writing stuff is like, oh, you're always supposed to talk about your character's needs and wants, right? And sometimes what they want isn't necessarily what they need. But if you kind of look at it in terms of <clears throat> relationship uh, and intimacy coaching and, and sort of you look at the idea of desire, desire is wants and needs and oftentimes what you want is indeed what you need. They are the same thing. And so to, you know, it, 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 it just, it's like, a, it's a very different way of looking at it than what we're sort of normal, like usually told when we're, you know, as when we're, when we're talking about our writing or sort of like taught in writing. Um, so it's something that I'm trying to sort of, because that whole thing of what does she want, but what does she need? Um, always, always rang false to me. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I think that's what's really exciting about really great sex scenes in particular, because they're not really about what people expect to happen. Like what's exciting about a good sex scene isn't the mechanics of it. It's about um, tapping into that, tapping into, tapping into core need in a different way, right? right? Like not core need the way that we always talk about it, but like really core need. Right. And getting and getting getting to that core need through that particular act with that particular person. Right. And I always say sex never, ever, ever starts in the bedroom. No, it does not. For you, where does it start? Uh, I mean, it's like even if you're writing sort of even if you're writing a bar tryst among strangers, you know, where somebody sees somebody else from across the bar and like mm. raises an eyebrow and then the other person like juts their chin towards the back and they go have like an alleyway encounter, right? Mm -hmm. There's still something that happened in that exchange. Yeah. And there's still something that each of them needs and you can still write a really effective, you know, alleyway encounter that absolutely is hot and absolutely makes total and complete sense in a non-cliche way. If you make it clear what that exchange was and what your character is getting, and maybe in that case, what your character needs and is getting started before that moment and led them to be sitting there at the bar. And if you, but if you have characters who, you know, they know each other first and then the sex happens later um, you know, just every encounter that they're having and everything that's going on in their life leads up to the sex and what they need out of the sex. So I'd love to get into um, the scene that you sent me. And this is from The Art of Worship. And I'd love for you to set this up for us. So The Art of Worship is, uh, it's, this, I, I always trip over saying this, it's a young adult erotic rom-com, which should be an anomaly because yes. YA is not supposed to be erotic. So I've got two 18-year-olds who are in high school, first loves, and both of them are virgins. And 
it's dual point of view, but the, the basic premise of the story is that um, the hero, Reed, really wants to go all the way with his girlfriend, Aubrey, but realizes that he doesn't really know what he's doing and accepts his father's offers of help, which is just so super awkward. Yeah. <laughs> But also so super awesome because it turns out to be this bonding thing for Reed and his dad. And it's just sort of like his dad giving him the talk, but the real talk. And yeah. it turns out that his dad's dad gave his dad the real talk. And it's this like tradition passed down from father to son. So there's just this super awkward 18 year old getting this real sex instruction from his father um, and then kind of going out into the field and trying out what he's learning. But his dad is actually giving him really good sex advice. And it's really not about the mechanics of sex. It, his dad's really giving him an education on, but what is sex all about? And what yeah. is it supposed to be for you? And what is it supposed to be for her? And he, the dad's really trying to turn him into a good partner and a, a person who can be a healthy adult in terms of his sort of sexual relationships. You know, these are conversations that I wish more dads or even moms at that, you know, were, were having with their sons. Yes. And I'm a mom of boys. Oh, good. <laughs> Yay. Yes. So you will be having this conversation, I'm assuming. Because yeah. um, I think that it's, I think it's important to have, I think that um, a lot of times, you know, kids are getting their information from the internet or from their friends, which is not necessarily a great source or from porn, you know, and I think particularly boys and we really are setting up, um, we're, 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 you know, for, for all the focus that is on girls and women's sexuality and all of that, I think that we do a disservice by not talking about boys more. I, yeah, I think so too. And it's funny. So there is absolutely a moment in the book where the dad's like, listen, don't listen to what those other boys are telling you in the locker room. It's like the blind leading the blind. And right. That's, that's exactly what it's like. Right? <laughs> um, so I, I agree with that. And actually the reviews for this book, this is one of those weird little books where it's just like, it's a little novella and it's not tied to a series and it's not one of my bigger books. It's one of the earlier books that I put out, but it's got like a 4.8 star review. And if you read the reviews, wow. the people are like, oh my God, they should teach this in high schools. Yeah. Or like, this is the, this is what I wish I had had when I, like, I wish my dad had had this talk with me. Yeah. So I love that. I, yeah. I agree. Yeah. I, a lot of the point of view, I, you know, the, from the scene that I've read, it's, or the scenes that I read, it was, it, it was very, it was sort of very heavily on read. And I know that it is dual point of view. Um, so I'm a little bit curious about, um, uh, about Aubrey's sort of trap, like her, her journey through this book in particular too. An interesting contrast about Aubrey is that she had an absentee mother. Okay. So Aubrey lives with her dad and doesn't sort of have that parallel situation where she's got a mom who's helping her understand how to grow into her adult sexuality. But there are these scenes with her dad where her dad is kind of aware, like her dad knows that she and Reed have been dating and that they're together and all of those sorts of things. 
And with her, you see this dynamic of her dad's not really trying to encourage it, but her, but they have a conversation about it as well. Okay. It is sort of a, a more reserved, definitely, you know, not nearly as open as Reed and his dad. Right. Um, but I think it draws that contrast between it really matters who you have to talk to. Mm. It really matters who you have available to you. Yeah. Absolutely. And at one point in the book, Reed's mom, sort of knowing that her mom's not around, at one point Reed's mom has a pretty funny open conversation with her about, you know, whether she and Reed are having sex. Oh, I love I love that. I love that. Okay. We're going to dig into this. Um, all right. So I'm going to start in Reed's point of view. <clears throat> Playing the piano usually relaxes me, but as I stare at the ivory keys, I can't bring myself to touch a single one. No song fits this occasion. No melody will calm my nerves. No distraction will keep me from looking at my watch every 45 seconds. It was a stupid plan anyway. The volume of the music will prevent, prevent me from hearing her car in the driveway, from knowing the exact second she arrives. Sitting on my bench with anxiety instead of calm makes the piano itself feel foreign to me, as if it isn't even mine. This is akin to what it feels like those first moments when I sit at an unfamiliar unfamiliar piano on an unfamiliar stage, sensing critical eyes and expectant ears on me, the anonymous crowd hungry for a perfect performance. I've been here before. The only way out is through it. This time, my mother's wisdom, it's my mother's wisdom that infiltrates my mind. In this situation, there is only one decision to make, do or die, fight or flight, show up or don't. And if you opt to do or fight or show up, the only thing to do is to start playing, to trust that all the practice you've put in will pay off. Oh, he's a jumble of nerves. <laughs> yes. I love that. I loved how his anxiety, his, his, his anxiety leading up to like, he knows this is the night, this is the, this is the night they're going to actually have sex. And, you know, based on some of the scenes um, that came before that I read, like they've, they've been fooling around, they've come close. Um, he's made her orgasm, but they've never actually had penetration. And this is the night. And I was like, this was such a great way to describe his nerves um, leading into their first time and, and his anxiety and his excitement. And I really appreciated seeing this part because I, I think particularly with men, we assume that they don't have anxiety over sex. Yeah. I, I do that a lot in my books. I do a lot of reversals that just go against type, you know, like my, my one book, um, you know, Snapdragon, I wrote a billionaire and she was the billionaire and, right. and he's the one who sort of pulled himself up from his bootstraps. This was pretty deliberate in this book where I wanted to draw attention to exactly what you're talking about that, you know, I feel like almost every high school boy we see portrayed in the media is either really geeky or really sex driven right and it's like obviously obviously the guy wants to go as far as possible and obviously he's ready and in control and just waiting for that moment and i i just i think it feeds mm -hmm. into toxic masculinity and yeah. we need to rewrite that narrative 
and he knows exactly what to do. And, and he's he confident, exactly to do, right? you know, he's confident in his abilities, even though he's never done it. Yeah. It's really right. kind of an extraordinary thing. <laughs> well, you know what, even, you know, even in, um, even in stories about adults, like if you read new adult, you read these sort of like young 20 something men who are so good in bed. And it's like, well, who taught them? <laughs> <laughs> because I don't know that my experiences were the same as all that. Yeah. <laughs> Right. I, I don't. Yeah. So it's, yeah, the, the, the big mystery of where men get all of this experience is a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so that's why I loved that we had this peak inside the, the anxiety of, of the boy, because, and like, I, like I had said before about how um, our society does a real disservice to boys and men is that we don't let them see this part. Right. Like, right. yeah, we don't let them see this part. We don't, we don't let them say it's okay to be awkward and you're not going to get it on the first try. And this might take some practice and be patient with yourself and be patient with your partner. And, you know, you guys are in this together and have conversations and talk about these moments between you two. And I guess if you can't talk to your parents about it, how are you going to talk to your partner? Right. And how are you going to, you know, there is that sort of posturing that happens with boys and I mean, with girls too, but, you know, among your friends, there's a lot of social status that, um, you know, if you're in high school, you're really invested in social status and uh, regardless of what your gender is sort of not wanting to appear weak or unknowledgeable in front of your friend group. I think there are things about being a teenager that can be really lonely because you really shouldn't know everything about everything. There's a lot that you shouldn't know yet. Our society is pretty, um, is pretty hostile to certain kinds of vulnerability. Yeah. And also at the same time that we're telling them kids that they shouldn't, they should know these things. We're also not doing anything to teach them. That's right. Um, you know, there's sort of like this flip side, like you should know about this, but we're not going to tell you about it. You just, I don't magical thinking. You're just going to know. It's just, ah, no, it doesn't work like that. Like we've got to have these conversations. Right. And the absolute worst is that, that parental quandary of like, you don't want your kids having sex. So then you, you therefore like, don't want to encourage, you don't want to encourage your kid to have sex. So let's just not tell them anything about sex. Right. right? <laughs> or let's not tell them, let's not tell them what they really need to know. That's the whole, like, that's the whole thing. It's like, well, I'm not going to talk to my kid about suicide because I, if I talk to them about it, I'm afraid it's going to give them ideas. Like we know that right. that doesn't work with respect to many, many things. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Okay. So I'm going to jump down now. He's uh, they're together now. She has arrived. <laughs> Things escalate quickly. We go from kissing shoulder to shoulder to kissing with her tucked under my one arm to my erection stalking her hot slippery center like a cruise guided missile when she maneuvers to sit side saddle on my lap. I should add we're in a jacuzzi now. Um, (laughs) We'd been submerged to our shoulders, but her new position has placed her breasts just above the waterline. When she arches her back at some point, instead of returning her lips to mine, I know what she wants. So I lower my mouth to her beautifully puckered nipple, which may only be so hard and pebbled as a result of the cold, but holy shit, it turns me on. 
This is the first time we've both been completely naked, skin to skin, and beyond each of us writhing and rubbing down below to create more friction, the coolness of the night air against my warm skin and the motion of the spinning jets feels sublime. This again is sort of like a great moment leading up to the moment. Um, so many different ways a first time can go, right? What was it about the jacuzzi that you wanted to play with by making it a big part of their first time together? Um, you know, I did feel that there needed to be, yeah, I felt that it was a process. Mm, okay. And I felt like some sort of like a progression of locations symbolized a process. Mm, okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. And I think there were just also some pieces of, so the, the bigger context for this is that his parents are out of town for the night. Right. So there's also the sense of they have the run of the house and they've never, you know, they've been making out a lot, but they've never been naked together. Mm. And all of the sorts of things that you sort of have access to as you're an adult. I mean, like if you're a kid and you're sexually active, the one thing you don't have is like privacy. Right. So it was sort of like just a little bit of them having the run of the house and having the use of the property and everything that was, you know, like yeah. <laughs> just like having access to the jacuzzi is some, was part of the novelty of, of that privacy. Of the whole moment. So cool. All right. So we're back in the jacuzzi. Um, are we back in the jacuzzi? Yes, we are. When she becomes too breathless to kiss, her hand grips the back of my neck and she arches back once more. I feel her pussy coil even tighter around me as my mouth lavishes attention on her other nipple. I am I am rock fucking hard and my other hand holds her waist to better allow my hips to mimic my fingers rhythm. My cock is right there closer than he's ever been to heaven. It's like you're fucking me. She says in a lust filled voice I'd never heard. And the small part of my brain that isn't preoccupied with these astounding new sensations, sensations pieces something together. I am beyond thinking beyond planning beyond worrying about what I should do. The only thing in the world that is important right now is making us feel good. And my body is so sure of what it wants that instinct is taking over. Is that what you want, baby? I practically growl as I interrupt my own rhythm to give more attention to her G-spot. Holy hell, what are you and what have you done to the real read? Oh my God, I like spit out my water at that when I read that part. Because I was like, yes, what have you done with the real read? I was like, loved how he sort of like, as he's like, I don't know, it was like he was gaining confidence through their whole, like the, their moment in the jacuzzi. They're not having sex. Um, they're finger fucking, for lack of a better term. And and he's sort of like gaining this confidence that is super cute and really kind of sexy. And I'm like, go read. Like, I'm totally rooting for him now. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> what, so did you, I mean, like, what brought him to this epiphany or you to, as the writer to give him this epiphany? Well, you know, I, so for me, it was a little bit of the balance, which was you, you do have, um, teenagers so first of all teenagers are still getting used to like this like what is my body gonna do and right. how in control am I of my body so I wanted parts of that to ring true for all of his meticulous planning because mm. fundamentally he's trying to control the situation fundamentally he's trying to sort of engineer their first time because he wants to not be embarrassed and he wants it to be good for her and he wants it to bring them closer yeah. But he had to reach a point where the plan was sort of 
out the window and it just had to happen the way it was going to happen. Right. Oh, it was, I thought this was so cute. I just, I loved this sort of first time. I think this is my very first, first time like virgins that we've talked about on the (laughs) podcast, which is so cool. (laughs) Um, I don't know that I would have the, I don't know. I kind of think it takes balls of steel to write like the virgin, like two virgins. I love that you did. I don't know that I could do it. Um, I think it's awesome. yeah. That's a, it's such a weird little book. It doesn't fit into any genre because there are people who write deflowering romance, and it's it really doesn't feel like other deflowering romance. No, this is definitely. I would. I I'm having a hard time even thinking about this as deflowering romance. Like I, like this is just too. It's just really sweet and it's really beautiful, and I think it really taps into that sort of first time. Um, the, the, the anxiety and the beauty and the stress and the excitement and all of those things that go into your very first time. Yeah. You know, which I thought was really gorgeous. Okay. So we are now in Aubrey's point of view. Um, so uh, we're going to jump right in here. I don't want to lose control. He looks down into my eyes and I think I almost did. I liked it. He shakes his head down there. You have no idea how close I was to fucking you, but you didn't. I point out. Um, uh, Yeah, I'm sorry. Maybe I should set this up a little bit. They've now left the jacuzzi. They've almost had sex, but he's like, and she almost is, he stops it. There is no condom. She almost tells him to keep going, but then Cooler heads prevail. They get out. They're in. They're in Reed's bedroom. Condoms are at the ready. We're good to go. All right. So here we go. <laughs> I don't want to lose control. He looks down into my eyes, and I think I almost did. I liked it. He shakes his head. Down there, you have no close. I was how, how you have no idea how close I was to fucking you, but you didn't. I point out. You took care of me. You got us here, and now we're going to do it right. Something in his eyes changes. He kisses me deeply one more time before rising to his knees and putting on the condom. And it's all happening so fast. His tip at my entrance, the first few inches he pushes in, the pain followed by the pleasure. Fuck, he says. He's out of breath, even though he's not moving. I don't think he's all the way in, but I love the way he feels inside me. I can feel everything. I can feel him throbbing every few seconds can feel how hard he is, can feel his amazing girth. This is my new favorite feeling, the very Mm. best in the world. (laughs) I loved she was so much more more sure of this than he was in a way. You know, um, he spent so much time worrying, but she spent a lot of time feeling and being comfortable with her desire, which I thought was a very interesting twist because we're often taught the opposite, unless I'm picking up on this wrong, um, because I haven't read the whole book. But that was sort of my reaction to this, that she had, she had a more of a comfort level with it than he did. Yeah, and I wanted to write that too, because I'm somebody who the first time I had sex, I knew immediately that I really liked sex. And I, I feel that whole like sex positivity thing. Um, is like I wanted to write a heroine who is sex positive. Mm, I love right it. where it wasn't yeah. like oh this hurts and like like I like the whole book she's kind of like she you're right she's ready. Yeah, it's sort of amazing to sort of think about how much of our neuroses are really wrapped up in shame, and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot now that you know when we're recording this it's May it's National Mental Health Month and I'm like sort of sitting here going you know saying to myself mental health is sexual health 
mental health is sexual health. Like that is really a big part of it. And letting, um, you know, letting, letting go of our shame or, or not letting our shame kind of like consume us. And I think, uh, you know, particularly for girls or women with their first time with losing their virginity, it can be a very raw, you know, fraught experience and a very shame filled experience. And I loved that for her, it wasn't, she was yeah. so confident. She was so confident with this decision. It was great. Yeah. I was, I'm cheering for them. Yes. <laughs> now we're back to read. Fuck, I say. Technically, it's everything I've been led to believe it will be. Hot, tight, slippery, wet, the heaviness of my balls. But it's so much more than that. I'm seeing stars every time she coils more tightly around me. It's lightning bolts every time her pussy twitches. It's the tingling that starts in my back, building toward an orgasm that I can already tell will be different from any I've ever felt before. But most of all, it's wanting to move because amazing, as amazing as this feels, it's not enough. And moving will make it so much better. I want to close my eyes and pissed in my hips. I want to dr drive into her until I can feel her entrance on my balls. But I don't want either of those things more than I want her to enjoy this. And fuck, I can see that she does. And that's a turn on all its own. My movements are slow and only about half of me is inside of her. But her body and her words are confirming that she likes this. Every word of praise brings me closer. Every rise of her hips to meet me eggs me on. I'm going slowly, but even with that, it feels too good. We've only been at it for a minute, but I know I'm going to come. Oh, first times. <laughs> yeah. Awkward and beautiful and all the things. Yes. What was it like to write it, um, writing a first time for from, from a male point of view? I, I, that I also think it's, really interesting um yeah I wanted him to have that moment of joy you know it's like this is actually this is everything that it's supposed to be right um and this is like this is my first time and I don't really have much stamina like it's I just wanted him to have that moment where it's like so many things are happening at once like He's paying attention to her and his body is feeling all of these sensations that he's never felt before. And, you know, I think that um, sex can be overwhelming, right? Yeah. I just, I wanted, I wanted that overwhelm to show through, but not I, bad overwhelm. Sex can be overwhelming in a super good way. Yeah. 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 And that's, you know, what I, I guess what I really loved at this moment was not quote unquote romance novel. Perfect. But it clearly worked for both of them. And it re reminded me of an earlier scene from a different section that you had sent me where he is so excited to bring her to orgasm that he actually ejaculates in his pants. And <laughs> there, so like that was like this really like I was like, well, I wasn't expecting that, you know, because you don't expect to read that, um, you know, that in a romance novel that I do think that's, you know, I love that there were absolutely no unrealistic expectations that like, or unrealistic moments that were written into this. That was all very, very real. Thank you. And relatable. And I enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I enjoyed it as much as read, but I definitely enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's, I don't know. There's some, there is something sweet about, you know, kind of looking back on young love and first yeah. encounters, you know, they're not perfect, but they have their place. Yeah. Yeah, they do. And I kind of, you know, it makes me a little sad about my first time. <laughs> 
because I'm like, oh, it could have been like this. Probably should have been like this, you know? Yeah. No, definitely. My first time was not like that either. But um, we don't know what we don't know, right? <laughs> no, we don't. We don't. And it's, you know, it's, it's, I think, you know, it can be healthy to, to go back to that place and just, you know, go back and think about your, yourself at that age and, you know, kind of forgive yourself for what did or didn't happen. Because when you go back to that age, you realize how little you knew. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if we had people that would have these conversations with us, we would have been better prepared for sure. (laughs) With whatever was going to happen. Right. So Kelby, what's coming up for you? What do you have next? Um, What I have next, I have, uh, so I have written a book for the Pennyverse. This is Penny Reed's universe. I've written a book in her uh, Green Valley series that it will be coming out in the fall. And I'm really excited about that. Penny is, Penny's books are one reason why I decided to write original fiction. I had sort of been in a rut and I decided to publish because I went back to reading romance and I loved her book. So I'm just super excited to be writing in her universe. Oh, that's really, that's really cool. That's really cool. Um, On the internet, where's the best place for readers to connect with you? Uh, I'm on Instagram a lot. So Instagram, I'm at Kilby Blades, at Kilby Blades on Twitter as well. And I'm at Kilby Blades author on Facebook. Excellent. And I will have all of the links and all of that fun stuff in the show notes. Kilby, thank you, thank you so much for taking the time um, to do this. I really appreciate it. It was great to talk to you and connect. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it as well. Um, this has been great. Cool. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Sign up to get email alerts when a new one goes live at lgreco.rocks. And don't forget to five-star us on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time.